traditionally, this weekend, it marks one of my favorite times of the year. And it's not because it's time to take down the Christmas decorations. We'll actually keep them up for another couple of weeks. It's because it's the culmination of the college football bowl season. Now, for those of you who are college football fans, you know like I do, January 1st, it wasn't once, it wasn't, it isn't what it once was, but you can watch football from 11 a.m. till 11 p.m. tomorrow. What a great day. Now, many of you may not know this about me because I'm so fit and trim as I've gotten older, and some of you like to make fun of me for trying to run half marathons, but back in, back in my college days, I played football. I was one of the guys who played offensive line. And for those of you not that familiar with football, that's the big, huge, strong, muscular guys up front who block for the guys who are a little bit smaller and weaker. Maybe they're faster uh, behind you and out in the periphery. Back in, back in the day, I could squat something like 1,000 pounds and bench press something like 600 pounds. Of course, those numbers might get bigger every year. Now, one of the most difficult aspects of being a Christian and playing college football was locker room culture. This past year, there was a certain tape that surfaced. The media now refer to this tape as the Access Hollywood tape. And in it, Donald Trump, who was not yet president, crassly discussed women, talking about their female anatomy, talking about the body of his own daughter. And he dismissed the criticism he received, saying it was locker room chatter. Many disagreed. But I got to tell you, there was truth in what he was saying. I remember the locker room. Guys frequently discussed female body parts. Guys freely discussed their latest encounter with ladies. As a Christian, I was known for having a different ethic. I was known as a guy who was not trying to sleep with whatever girl I could get my hands on. I was known as a guy who who didn't openly talk about pornography. As such, I, I was made fun of. I was thought of as outdated. I was thought of as backwards. Now, many of you may not have experienced locker room culture, but you have a sense of what I'm talking about. As you live out the Christian ethic, as you enter into gatherings, there are certain programs people talk about that you've refrained from watching. There are stances that you take on marriage that are certainly different than the people you interact with. In the ways you engage social media, you're trying to be pure and right in those interactions. So as you live out the Christian sexual ethic, you may not get made fun of, but, but you probably are known for what you're not doing, for what you stand against. And there's a sense that you're, the, the term traditional applies to you. Traditional in that that's what people did 100 years ago but that's not how they live today. Since the month of November, we've been working our way through what many people believe is the most famous sermon ever preached by Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. We've been learning about the type of life Jesus calls his followers to. And this Sunday, we will learn about his ethics on sex and marriage. 
And what we'll learn is he's calling his followers to so much more than a prudish and outdated and antiquated lifestyle. Throughout the sermon, we've been learning how Jesus is teaching because of sin, people do not live as they ought to live. People do not love as they ought to love. People do not think as they ought to think. When sin entered the world, it destroyed the life people had experienced from the beginning. Sin destroyed the way individuals interacted with one another. Sin destroyed the the way individuals saw one another. And in delivering the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is seeking to restore the beauty of the life God intended for his people. As Pastor Zach Eswine expresses it, but I commend to you that God has been about nothing but seeking to recover and restore what was lost in Eden. As we read earlier, Jesus teaches his followers to reject lust and divorce. And as he does so, he is teaching them to recover what was lost in Eden. He is teaching them to recover the type of life you and I were intended to live. So so our big idea this morning is rejecting lust and divorce recovers our humanity. Now, before we dive into this topic too far, I think it's important to say many in our church know all too well the opposite is true. They know that sexual sin and divorce dehumanize us. I've had the opportunity to look many individuals in our church in the eyes. I've shed tears in living rooms. I've listened to the havoc sin has produced in our personal lives and in our homes. Some don't need to hear that lust and divorce reduce our humanity. They know it all too well. What they need to hear is there is a God who is not silent on this issue. There is a Savior who addresses lust and divorce as wicked. There is a God who tells his people, accepting lust, accepting divorce, it is wrong. It destroys our humanity. So to expound on this thought, we're going to observe three ways Jesus teaches his followers to recover our humanity. So number one, he teaches us to recover a right view of others. To help his followers understand the dangers and the wickedness of lust, Jesus compares it to adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's important to note, Jesus is not condemning someone here for acknowledging another person is physically attractive. That is absolutely okay. But what he is saying, when you acknowledge physical attractiveness in someone, it's what you do next that matters. Jesus couples the word, the words lust and intent. A man commits an act similar to adultery when he desires a woman's body for himself. He reduces that woman to a, a sexual object. object. He sees what she is in a very narrow scope. She is no longer perceived and understood in light of her true beauty. She is reduced 
to an object for his physical pleasure. Now, of course, this principle of reducing others to an object, interacting with them in a, in a narrow scope, it stretches far beyond men objectifying women sexually. Women struggle to reduce men to sexual objects too. Men and women struggle to reduce one another to emotional objects or intellectual objects or relational objects. Rather than interacting with an individual in their full humanity, we reduce them to a narrow scope, an aspect of who they are that does something for us. To help us understand what it means to reduce something to an object, I want to share an analogy. Okay? Like all analogies, it's not perfect. This one will fall short, but I do believe an analogy is necessary to help us lock in the difference between seeing something in their full beauty and reducing them to an object. So, in light of the holiday season, the first image is a picture of a recently cooked turkey. Okay? When you see this image, if you like turkey, like me, you may want to eat it. If you don't like turkey, you may want to dismiss it. In a narrow scope like this, you tend to reduce that turkey to an object that you want to eat or don't want to eat in relation to you. Now, the second object is the image of a family around a turkey. When you view this image, you you think about a turkey differently. You no longer tend to fixate on how you relate to the turkey. Instead, you think about it in a much broader sense. You, you think about that turkey bringing joy and life to others. This turkey isn't an object for you to consume. It, much, it has a much larger and grander purpose. In the first image, the turkey has been reduced to something less than it truly is. In the second image, you're capturing more of its true value and worth and beauty. Now, Jesus is not talking about devaluing turkeys. It certainly is not sinful to do so. He's talking about devaluing people. As I said, this analogy falls far short of what Jesus is getting at. In reducing others to sexual objects, or emotional objects, or relational objects, or intellectual objects, we fail to see the big picture. We fail to view an individual in light of their true beauty and their true worth, rather than seeing who they are in relation to a holy God, who they are in relation to others. We focus on an aspect of who they are and what that aspect does for us. And so when they give us what we want, we feel good that that object is giving something to us. But when they don't give us what we want, we dismiss that object. Some of you know what it's like to be reduced to an object. You've had someone, maybe it's a boyfriend or a a girlfriend, maybe even a husband or a wife, they've reduced you to a sexual object. Or maybe you've had a friend or a coworker or, so, or someone in the church reduce you to an emotional object. Rather than interacting with you in your f- full beauty, 
in your full humanity, you've been reduced. When that happens, it leaves you with a sense of low self-worth and diminished value. Jesus says, viewing someone as an object, it is wrong, it is wicked, it is dehumanizing. Jesus is teaching his followers to recover viewing others in their full humanity. Now, we've broadened the application of this section of scripture to women and to reducing others to objects in a multitude of ways. But we need to consider, Jesus is singling out men in this passage. When Jesus addresses lust, he emphasizes a man lusting. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Likewise, what we'll find as we, as we move to a discussion on divorce, he's addressing men. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, for some, this may justify a position that Jesus is being misogynistic or chauvinistic. He's affirming male prominence. Females certainly struggle with lust and marital unfaithfulness, too. We know from other stories in Scripture, the Bible is not silent about women committing acts of lust or women struggling to be faithful to the marital covenant. So why is Jesus singling out men? Jesus is recognizing the tendency of men in positions of power to devalue women. Looking at so many events of the past year, we know this is true. Men are all too guilty of using positions of power to devalue women. In the past year, there have been stories of male news anchors having buttons that could be used to lock women in their office. Pictures of male politicians with their hands touching female body parts they have no business touching. Male producers, male comedians using their prominence to justify sexually harassing women. Even men in the judiciary or men serving in the pulpit, stories where men have used such positions to make sexual advances on those who are weak and vulnerable. These stories do not even include how 70% of men, in contrast to 30% of women, regularly confess to looking at pornography, an industry that exploits vulnerable individuals, or how the vast majority of individuals soliciting a prostitute, whose statistics tell us are beaten an average of 12 times a year, are men. Or how men admit they cheat on their spouses at a 50% higher rate than women. Scripture teaches us God created a man and woman to have equal dignity and worth before the Lord. To devalue a woman, to reduce her to a sexual object, to take advantage of a woman and put her in a position of vulnerability, it is very much an action dishonoring and defaming the Lord. I want to speak directly to a couple groups of men in our church for a minute. First, older men. Men who, who are making disciples of others. Fathers. 
if that's too narrow of a scope, let me say younger men who want to grow up to be older men. Men who want to be fathers someday. Those of you who want to disciple others. I know the numbers of men in the church may not mirror that of the culture. One of the polls I saw said that 27% of men in the church acknowledge weekly looking at pornography. So if we extrapolate that out to our church, that's 3 in 10. If that's describing you, we need you to aggressively pursue confession and repentance. Looking at pornography, you are reducing a woman to a sexual object. You are rejecting and deforming her true beauty. And we'll get to this in a bit, but we're forming how we interact and how we relate to the women in our lives. Reject reducing women to, their, to, to, to a sexual object. Two, husbands. Beyond treating your wife as a sexual object, you can dismiss her as not having equal value and worth in your marital relationship. You can dismiss having difficult conversations with her. You you can dismiss bringing her in, inviting her in to challenging areas of your life. You can demean her with jokes or looks or how you talk to her, or how you talk about her. Your Savior, he honors and cherishes his bride, and he teaches us as men to do the same. Ladies, to those in our church who've felt the sting of being devalued, to those who've had husbands abandon them or cheat on them, to those who've been treated as a sexual object, Your Savior says it's not okay. It was not okay for his followers 2,000 years ago, and it's not okay for his followers today. It's painful. It's dehumanizing. It is defacing the very image of God. And to you, I am genuinely sorry. Jesus is calling out men and how they view women, and in doing so, he's helping us recover our humanity. This is point number one. Jesus is teaching us to have a right view of others. Point number two. Jesus is teaching us to recover a right view of a marriage partner. To better understand the nature of what Jesus was confronting when he surfaced the topic of divorce, we need to move from chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel to chapter 19, where the topic comes up again. In verse 3, some Pharisees came to him and tested by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce one's wife for any cause? In Jesus' day, individuals were justifying divorce for any and every reason. Here's a, a quote from the first century historian Josephus. A man could be divorced from a wife for any trivial reason. For example, if she burnt her husband's food, or if a man caught the eye of another woman, he could write a certificate of divorce. 
Because the law permitted divorce, individuals were twisting the law to dispose of a marital partner. An individual could be rejected as a spouse if the husband didn't feel his wife was meeting his physical needs or emotional needs or spiritual needs. This, of course, is another form of reducing someone to an object. Jesus says, holding such a viewpoint, it diminishes the value of a marriage partner. It's evil. In helping us recover our humanity, Jesus responds to the Pharisees, quoting from the book of Genesis. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The Bible teaches God created man and woman, and he joined them together as one flesh. And and this was before sin entered the world. At the core, a husband and wife are united emotionally. They are united spiritually. They are united intellectually. They are united sexually into one flesh. Jesus is emphasizing the strongest of relational language here. He's not saying husbands and wives are like brothers and sisters who have similar genetics or a similar type of blood or the same ancestry. He's saying they are one flesh, one being. A marriage partner is your own flesh. You can't separate that. Many of you know Josh. He is my amazing nine-year-old son. And if I were to come one Sunday and say, you know what, Josh has been misbehaving for a really long time. He doesn't follow my instructions. Of course, this would never happen. He doesn't follow my instructions. He's really naughty. He doesn't clean his room. He calls his sister's names as a son. He's not meeting my emotional needs. And so I've decided he's not my son anymore. We've even signed a piece of paper It says, I'm not his father and he's not my son. You would all say that's impossible. You would say, I might be able to reject a reality that exists, but it is still a reality. He is your son and you are his dad and a piece of paper doesn't change that. Jesus is saying individuals may be able to appeal for a piece of paper saying they're divorced, but it doesn't change the reality. They are still one flesh. A husband and wife cannot separate the one fleshness that exists. A husband and wife have been bound together by God. She will always be his wife, and he will always be her husband. They are one flesh. Understanding a husband and wife as one flesh, it helps us understand Jesus' teaching on when divorce is permissible. He says divorce is permissible in the case of adultery. When an individual is married and they join themselves to someone else sexually, he has united himself in one fleshness to someone else. 
He's broken the one fleshness he had with his wife. He has torn his flesh apart and united it to someone else. His wife has been ripped apart at the core. As such, it makes sense she is released from her marital commitment. A husband or a wife, their value is not to be diminished. They are not to be tossed out for any and every reason. Jesus teaches us to reject such thinking to recover our humanity. Now, a third thing Jesus teaches us to recover is a right view of ourselves. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I think we all remember when we were little singing the song, the toe bone is connected to the foot bone, and the foot bone is connected to the leg bone, and the leg bone is connected to the thigh bone. On and on this song goes. It taught us when we were young the complexity and the interconnectedness of the human body. But for some reason, when it comes to engaging sin, we we want to deny this reality. We fail to remember that what we take in with our eyes or what we do with our hands, it affects our head and our hearts. Jesus destroys any notion that sin is isolated to a a particular aspect of our biology. He says the idea that if you sin with your right eye, it only affects your right eye, that's foolish. The idea that if you sin with your right hand, It only affects your right hand. That's foolish. So my full-time job is is serving as a healthcare professional, uh, a physical therapist to be exact. As a healthcare professional, I know that our brains, they're forming connections based on what we're doing and what we're taking in, so what our senses are experiencing and, and how we're using our bodies. So when, you, when, you, when you're moving, when you're active, when you're taking in things with your senses, you're activating brain pathways. When you do that, you're forming and strengthening particular connections between nerves in your brain. Now, when those, when those connections are associated with pleasure or positive emotion, there's a, there's a cascade of chemicals and hormones that go over those neurons, and they make those connections even stronger. So all of those activities, the activities we're involved in, begin to change our brains. It transforms the way when we lack pleasure, perhaps when you're experiencing disappointment or pain, it's been formed to say, hey, remember remember when you felt good? Remember that what it was like? Go back there. Do that. Remember how you felt? You, you can do it again. That's how our right hand and our right eye are forming our heads and our hearts. I, I, want, I want us to think for a minute. When you think about how you engage your right eye, or you think about how you engage your right hand, 
In what ways are you forming and strengthening connections in your brain that might be destructive? I'm going to tell you one of the concerns I have. Streaming services. To preface, let me say this. I really enjoy some of the programs on streaming services. Netflix, Amazon. We certainly watch some of these programs with my kids. At the same time, there's a lot of graphic sexual content that's on those streaming services. When I was a kid, graphic sexual content in movies, it was, it was given an X rating or an NC-17 rating. And so you knew, hey, stay away from this if you want to avoid graphic sexual content. Today, on streaming services, we simply encounter things like a TVMA or a TV mature rating. And we find that there a lot of the things that would have previously been labeled graphic sexual content is commonplace on programs on those streaming services. Now, some of you will tell me, taking in such scenes, they're not a big deal. It's harmless. It doesn't affect my brain or my biology. Science, scripture, they affirm something different. What you do with your right eye It matters. Many of us struggle to experience sexual fulfillment the way God intended because of the way we've used our right eye. We're foolish to believe the content that cheapens the sexual relationship between a husband and wife isn't cheapening the manner in which we view sex, the frequency with which we demand it, or the manner in which we expect to experience it. To deny the relationship between our eyes and our hearts the, the biological connection within our body, it's reducing our humanity. This may be one way we need to use our right eye differently. There are certainly others. In the first chapter of Genesis, in the beginning, we learn man and woman, their bodies have been created to image God. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The human body, it tells a theological story. The human body proclaims the type of being God is. And the human body declares who we are in relation to him. Before sin entered the world, our bodies declared God's goodness. They declared God was to be loved. They declared God was to be delighted in. They declared God had made a creation and it was good. Even the instruction to not eat of the tree of good and evil, by following this command, our bodies declared God was to be trusted and it is right to obey. When sin entered the world, our bodies told a different story. Our, our bodies proclaimed it is better to delight in the lust of the eye than in the being of our God. It is better for us to declare what is good and right than it is for us to trust God for such things. It is better for us to please our fleshly desires than to live for something greater. We've reduced ourselves to objects pursuing pleasure rather than objects who've been designed for a purpose. Your body will tell a theological story about what you believe and what you love. And Jesus is saying, you can't tell one story with your right eye 
or your right hand and a different story with your heart. If you believe and serve the enemy, your body will tell the story of devaluing others as objects and you're choosing hell. In marriage, when you aren't getting your physical needs met or your emotional needs met or your intellectual needs met, your body will tell the story of dismissing the value of a husband or wife. But if you believe Jesus, if you trust Jesus, your body will tell the story it was intended to tell. You have been made in God's image. Your body is special. And the bodies of those around you, they are special too. To recover our humanity, Jesus teaches us to recover a right view of ourselves. Now I want to turn a bit of a corner as we conclude. As I said earlier, many in our church know all too well the truth of what Jesus is proclaiming about sexual sin and divorce. How sexual sin of the heart, it is destructive. Others know all too well how divorce wreaks havoc. But the challenge is, in a church, we think we're supposed to have it all together and have it all figured out. And so many of us are secretly alone. Listen to Rosaria Butterfield. As I've traveled to different colleges and churches to speak about biblical sexuality, I've met countless people for whom every vital relationship has been marred by sexual sin. I've met husbands who have pornography addictions. Excuse me. I've met wives whose husbands have pornography addictions, whose teenage children engage in forwarding sexually explicit pictures on text messages. I've met husbands whose Bible-believing wives have left them for female lovers. I've met preteen girls, homeschooled, protected their whole lives, who found pornography on their mom's cell phones. I met one woman who had seven abortions, who goes to church weekly, and who lives a double life. And for each of these people, the sense of being out of control is overwhelming. The shame, guilt, and secret-keeping is unbearable. Many of us have secrets. We feel we can never talk about the sexual sin in our lives. We carry shame and guilt over what we've done and what's been done to us. When it comes to divorce that many in our church have experienced, we can see how God has been good in the midst of it, but there is rarely a day that goes by that it is not painful. In the midst of that pain, in the midst of that shame and guilt, in the midst of secret temptation, many of us are alone. Before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us how Jesus launched his ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This was Jesus' message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The things you've been holding on to, whether that's sin you've committed or sin that's been committed against you, I want you to know it no longer defines you. It doesn't determine your future course. There is a king who's come. He's far greater than your sin. He's far greater than the sin that's been committed against you. Don't live in secret. Don't let shame and guilt define you.
I was leading a, a recovery type group several years back, and one of the guys in that group was really open about sexual sin in his past. He, he talked about looking at pornography. He talked about lusting after women who were not his wife. He talked about struggles with dark sexual sin he was so ashamed of. And as we were wrapping up our time together, he said, I'm so glad I was able to talk about that. Now, now I can go back to my church and I never have to talk about that again. I never have to tell anyone. His past struggle with sin, it was still defining him. It made him want to hide. I never want to talk about that because of what people would think about me and how I view myself. Many of you, many of you know this type of isolation. You know that, that sexual sin has destroyed and wreaked havoc. Many of you have chosen, rather than living in isolation, you're going to reject that and you're going to walk in freedom. You're going to bring others in who offer healing and hope. I'm burdened for us not to be isolated. I'm burdened for us to bring others into how we've personally experienced the destructive effect of sexual sin and divorce. Please know, I'm, I'm not expecting us to plaster something on a billboard. I, I struggle with lust. I look at pornography. I was sexually abused as a child. I bear the scars of divorce. That's not what I'm asking. But there is something to say about our inability to talk about those past experiences. To heal, we need people in our regular lives who, who know, who can preach the gospel to us, and who can ask us how we're doing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. As the king of this kingdom, it's Jesus. Think about how he relates to others. He loves and cares for others. He honors them. He sacrifices himself for them. And think about how he relates to his marital partner. Even though she is unfaithful, even though she regularly abandons her vows, he is faithful to the end. He cherishes her. And, and think about how his body Think about the theological story it tells. For his body bears the marks of the sins of his people, and his body bears the scars of the sins that have been committed against the sins of his people. His blood was shed to forgive and to cleanse. So for those of you struggling to be defined by your sin, or the sin that's been done to you, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For you're defined by the king who ushered in this new kingdom and who helps us recover and restore our humanity.